TL Talk Radio, Season 2, Episode 15. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 15 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funihatton and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funihatton. Good afternoon, Randy. Good afternoon, Lynn. So really excited today uh, to hear from Bob Sorensen, author of Overtested and Underprepared, Using Competency-Based Learning to Transform Our Schools. And this is one of the topics that we're investigating for our Innovate Salisbury. So I'm happy to be able to talk with Dr. Sorensen today. He is an education leader calling for programs and practices that support competency-based learning, early learning success, and high-quality early childhood learning programs. He's the father of four grown children, works internationally with school districts, universities, and parent organizations. For over 30 years, Bob has worked as a teacher and an administrator in Michigan public schools. He developed an acclaimed model, Early Learning Success Initiative, and in 2001, founded the Early Learning Foundation. Bob has written numerous best-selling books for educators, parents, and children, along with many journal publications. Um, He's offered workshops and keynotes in 47 states and in other nations. He's dedicated to giving far more students a real chance at success. He's also dedicated to building systems in which learners thrive, care for each other, demonstrate personal character, love to learn, and work collaboratively. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you. I am delighted to be here. We're glad you're here and really looking forward to having our conversation about competency-based learning. So to start off the conversation, uh, several episodes ago, we actually had the chance to talk with Warren Berger, who's written a book called A More Beautiful Question. And in that book, he describes a beautiful question as one that is ambitious and actionable. What is the beautiful question behind your book, Over-Tested and Under-Prepared? Well, I do admire that book and that beautiful question. So here's my answer. In competency-based learning, we try to take on a couple of big things. One is the idea that we could create systems or frameworks in which a whole lot more kids can be successful. In fact, in which almost every learner can be highly successful. And it's an actionable idea because it's something that we really do know how to do. We know how to put in place in our own personal lives. And uh, by some of the work that I have done and other people have done, we do, in fact, know how to put it into into place in the real world, in real schools, all the way from preschool up to the university level. So it's going to be very interesting to hear about this idea of competency-based learning and, and how it works in the system that we currently have to work in, because we do have some constraints. And, you know, while we've been tinkering with this idea and thinking about it a lot, um, it's, you know, there's been some hesitancy as, as to how we might implement that. So we're really looking forward to hearing some of your ideas. Excellent. So from your viewpoint, Bob, what what is it about our current system of that cover, test, sort that no longer supports the majority of our learners to become successful? Well, in reality, that system has never supported a majority of our learners uh, to become good, competent, lifelong learners in reading, in mathematics, in problem solving, in science. It is a less than majority that are fully college ready, according to ACT and SAT, somewhere usually around the 22% rate. Uh, Rates of proficiency, if you look at the National Assessment of Educational Practice, 
are somewhere in the 20s and 30% in reading and or math and have been pretty much at the same level since the early 1970s when that data was, uh, was first gathered. So the system that we have in place now is designed to cover a certain standardized curriculum in each grade and or each course. It's a system that was in fact developed first uh, uh, in terms of our country in the state of Massachusetts, the first uh, public school system that we had in this country. They sent a fellow by the name of Horace Mann over to Prussia and to Europe to look around and try to find a system that uh, could work for that new public school system. He chose the Prussian system as the one that he liked best, partly because it was less punitive than some of the other systems. He brought it back and it was a grade one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight standardized curriculum for each grade, mostly designed to cover some basic ideas about reading, writing, arithmetic, civics, uh, American culture, to some degree, it was designed around the issues of uh, incoming numbers of immigrants and immigrant kids who needed to be acculturated to America and uh, given a little bit of exposure to American education. I say a little bit of exposure because no one expected very many of these students to stay around for all eight grades. In fact, the norm was that someone might come in for a grade or two or three or even leave and go home for a month or two at any time of year if their family needed them for work or on the farm or for any other purpose. Uh, so the whole idea was not to help people, a large number of people become good readers or mathematicians or scientists or problem solvers. It was an exposure model based on a standard curriculum. Over the years, we developed this thing called high schools in the late 1800s. But by 1900, only 6% of our school-age kids thought that staying around to graduate from high school had any strong benefit for them. We didn't reach 50% high school graduation rate in this country until about 1955. And so a standardized, one-size-fits-all delivery system worked reasonably well in a day and age when you didn't need a lot of really good readers, problem solvers, mathematicians, mm -hmm. and writers but the day and age in which we live now, the information and technology age, is a different thing altogether. So the demands of our information literacy society have evolved, but the system has not. Well, as an example, my wife and I have four children. What do we want for them? Do I want them to graduate from high school? Yes, but that's nowhere near enough. Do I want them to go and have advanced learning opportunities after high school? Oh, yes. But in fact, they are going to need to be learners for the rest of their working lives if they're going to keep up with the pace of information and technology. This learning thing isn't just confined to grade school or high school. It's a thing that we want our kids to be able to do for life. So this cover test sort system has um, some deep roots historically that you've reviewed for us. So in your book, what is the new vision that you propose to sort of get us out of this uh, cover, test, sort model? I, I love the way you asked this because uh, I'm going to change your question just a little bit. Okay. It's not, a, it's not a new system at all. It's a system that almost everyone I know uses in their life in certain aspects. So for example... If I were throwing and catching with a young child or my child or your child, 
I would not use a one-size-fits-all curriculum-driven model that had a pacing guide that said, at age six, I should reach into my bag and pull out a hard baseball <laughs> and start throwing it at this six-year-old with great speed. <laughs> If the pacing guy tells me to throw a hardball at your six-year-old, there might be something wrong with this picture. We do competency-based learning already today in many facets of our life. If you're teaching a teenager to drive right now, I hope you don't use a pacing guide. I hope instead that you give her all the time she needs to practice every phase of driving in some cases, some kids need more practice in a high school parking lot or on the streets when nobody is around or in the car without any distractions or any other people besides you and your child. We want to give them all the time they need to develop every prerequisite skill to move to the next level of difficulty. Uh, I'm going to get on an airplane tomorrow. I really hope that the pilot went to a competency-based learning program as opposed to what we do in K-12 in most universities, which is one course, one program, one curriculum for all people at the same age or at the same time, even though we're all quite different in terms of our learning readiness levels. I hope that the pilot took all the time necessary to learn every prerequisite skill, first in ground school, then in small airplanes, then in medium and larger and larger airplanes, until he or she developed every single one of those skills, not just at a fairly good level. I don't want that C minus navigator. I want those pilots to have the skills to perform on a sunny day, on a dark day, on a rainy day, on a windy day, any kind of day, any kind of circumstance that could come along. I want complete and absolute competency. And of course, in any life-threatening or, or serious kind of uh, endeavor, we have always found ways to do that. If you hire an electrician, you can be pretty darn sure that he or she went through a competency-based learning program. They learned the basic material, and they had to prove that they had learned it. Then they went out and served as an apprentice for years so that they could demonstrate on the job that they could use that skill in a whole bunch of different ways. There's competency-based learning all around us. So it's connected to the real world, and it sounds like the constant is the competency and the variable is the time. So regardless of whether it takes you know, a short period of time uh, or a long period of time, the, the thing that's constant is that the learner meets those competencies or has those skills developed and be, is able to perform, so to speak, um, regardless of the time. That's exactly right. Not only developing deep understanding, but then the ability to use that knowledge or that skill, not in one way, but in a variety of ways that might come along in real life. We want kids, for example, in math, let's take a typical first grade math program. Most math programs around the country are curriculum driven, mm -hmm. standardized, one size fits all. They do lesson number one, then lesson number two, then lesson number three, and if there are some skills that were presented in lesson number three that I didn't fully learn and I don't really understand, chances are that my class is going to move on to lesson number four tomorrow and I might be left not really fully understanding that skill. There are a few math skills in the early years, for example, that are really, really important and are the foundation for this thing we call number sense. 
no one is ever going to be able to understand and really do higher levels of math unless they develop a solid number sense. And a whole lot of adults and a whole lot of students in this country don't have number sense in large part because of the way they were taught in school. And I'm certainly reflecting and connecting to our practice and looking forward to hearing some ideas in our future questions on how to address those, those concerns. Um, thinking about the profile of competent graduate, and you mentioned for your, for your own children, you want them to finish high school and you want a whole lot more. You want them to, to want to continue to learn. If you were to look at a profile of a, a graduate today, what would that profile look like? What basic competencies do our graduates need? I'd like to have discussions with the smartest people in the world about just that question. Uh, there are several models out there that are pretty good models for those things that we would like competent graduates to have. One of them goes all the way back to 1991 when the Secretary uh, uh, of Education put together the Secretary's Commission on Achieving Necessary Skills, the SCANs. Are either of you old enough to remember the SCANs? Mm -hmm. Yep. It, it was a pretty good profile. And in fact, it's not too far off even those things that we might put on a, on a similar profile today. There's another one that's been out for a few years from the Partnership for 21st Century Skills, mm -hmm. also reasonable profile. Another one that was put together by the Global Education and Skills Forum. Or we could look to somewhere like the state of New Hampshire, which has put together a competency requirement for high school graduation. And the way they did it is they put together a state recommendation, but in fact, they said each individual district can figure it out on their own. But uh, several years ago now, each individual district in New Hampshire was required to come up with essentially an answer to your question. What are the skills and or competencies that are associated with each one of the high school graduation requirements for your district? So every individual district could choose whether to follow the state uh, model that was presented or whether they wanted to come up with an answer that was different and on their own. So in the system that we work in, we've got some constraints. Uh, we've got kids sorted by age. Um, we've got uh, assessments and state, uh, state assessments that uh, require uh, the understanding of certain uh, standards. So... If we are interested, if, and if schools are interested in this idea of competency-based learning, where do we start within a system that has those kinds of constraints? What are your suggestions? Basically, my suggestion has always been pick a place and start. If you look at the example of New Hampshire, they picked high school graduation, and they created an end frame. Here are some of the things that we want to see kids be able to do when they graduate from high school. But it's limited in its scope to the kinds of things that typically have been organized into courses and or high school credit requirements. Mm -hmm. That's a limiting factor in my view because there are other things that are important as well. I'm pretty sure they don't have a high school requirement that connects to things like social skills or oral language or speaking skills or some of the other things that you and I know are gonna be very important in the lives of many of our children. And so I think there's plenty of room for discussion as to exactly what the skills might be at that high school or end point. Uh, I'd also raise the question of whether all kids need to have, in fact, the exact same requirements. Is it possible that if I was building a competency system 
I would build a framework for some kids that are going into science, a different framework for kids that are going into engineering, possibly a different framework for kids that are more inclined towards the fine arts, possibly a different framework for kids that wanted to use their strong language skills in some way in the future. There could in fact be places along the line where we differentiate or allow for some matter of personal choice, family choice, student choice as a part of a competency framework. Mm -hmm. For me personally, I really like the idea of using a competency framework starting at the youngest levels, preschool, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, and third grade. And I say that because I have a special love of that end of the learning framework. And that is, in fact, the place where so much important work is done that lays the foundation for whether you're going to be a good learner for life. We can predict a person's learning outcomes for life fairly well by the end of third grade, as you, as you very well know. And so I, I like the idea of using a competency framework to make sure that kids have every single one of those skills that are important and predictive of whether they will be able to be successful learners down the line. I also like to be able to do that within the framework of the whole child. So I'm not just going to look at literacy and numeracy. I want to look at oral language. I want to look at sensory motor. I want to look at self-regulation and all the social emotional skills that are incredibly important predictors for success. It does seem like uh, the earlier grades have more of a competency-based focus, and as we work up through the grades, it becomes uh, much more constrained uh, in in the system that we're that cover cover system that we were talking about earlier. There is a certain logic to that because if students don't have some of the competency, some of the skills that are really strong at the level of competency let's say going back to first and second grade math, and a whole lot of students who are struggling in math in middle school and high school, in fact, in our research, every single struggling math student in middle school and high school does not have complete proficiency in some of the second grade math skills. Fixing that at the high school level is harder than fixing it when the kid is young. So thinking about you know, coverage, and you gave the math example. Is there ever a time when coverage is enough? I think so. Um, I think when we talk about a coverage or, or a competency framework, we want to delineate what are those skills, and we need to make them as few as we possibly can. What are those skills for which this child needs to be absolutely and completely competent? So, for example, in math, in uh, a book called Essential Math Skills that I uh, published a few years ago. There is a framework of 29 skills that go between preschool and third grade. And these 29 skills make up the foundation of this thing that we call number sense. And so those skills, four of them at preschool, four of them at kindergarten, five additional ones in first grade, six additional ones in second grade, these skills need to be learned really, really, really well. But at the same time, there should be a curriculum in which there's lots of other stuff going on. We're doing things with equations and balancing and shapes, and we're constructing things in physical form. There should be all kinds of activities and projects that bring math to life, but somehow within the context of that curriculum, which is the stuff we cover, we need to make sure that that small set of math skills are fully learned. 
but even in other aspects of life, some things can just be covered. Uh, I would love to take a course if it was well taught in Russian literature. I happen to really like the, some of the Russian writers, but I wouldn't be taking that course with the idea that I need to become competent in a certain set of skills because I'm never going to be a professor of Russian literature and don't want to be one of the world experts in that area. I would just be taking that course for exploration or for enrichment or to find out more about this stuff that I really enjoy. If I were to take a course in pottery, I'm not going to be a professional potter. I would be taking it for fun, for enrichment, for exploration, and for things that qualify under that category, coverage is just fine. So a few episodes ago, we've talked to a number of different people that have talked about this idea of uh, teachers throwing out grades, that uh, grades are really detrimental and that we shouldn't use them. So what do you see as the role of grades in competency-based education? I guess it depends on what you mean by grades. In the competency-based report cards that we use in some of our early, in all of our early learning model sites, uh, we give parents an update as to exactly where your child is in the development of this particular competency. So let's take kindergarten in which there are 30 skills for which we want each kid to become competent that cover all the domains of early childhood. Parents will know whether the child is at an intervention level, which means he needs a little extra help. We need to really get to work on this. Or if he's in what's called the developing level, which means he's making normal development for a child his age and we expect him to reach competency by the end of the year. Or if he or she has developed competency halfway through the year, here's that information. Guess what? Your child has already met the standard here for kindergarten. And now, because we know your child so well, we are going to move her up to the next level of challenge. We're going to continue to give her instruction at her instructional level. I guess you could call that a grade or report card, but it's not a one, two, three or an ABC. I'll give you an example of why I'm not so crazy about the ABCs. Some kid passes a class and he does it with a C minus. What does that mean, Randy? Does that mean that he actually learned the material well? Does it mean that there are certain skills that he really has developed? Or is it at a kind of an amorphous grade that compares kids to one another, but doesn't really tell you much about what they learned? That sort of sorting mechanism. You know, sorting made a lot of sense at one time. Uh, IQ tests were developed for what purpose? To screen kids out of school. Which ones should be sorted out of school? Grades do a pretty good job of telling where you are compared to other kids, but that's all they tell you. And of course, the bell curve has been shifted quite a little bit in the way we've given grades over the years so that a whole lot of kids get A's and B's and C, which was once an average grade, is now considered a bad grade. So I'm not really sure what grades mean depending <laughs> on where you are. So thinking about the example that you gave us with the student who's ready to move on to the next set of skills, um, can you provide us some examples where you've seen that happen, where that innovative competency-based learning is being explored and implemented, and um, you know, what, is, what does that look like? Well, in the case of the essential skill inventory, we have 30 skills for kindergarten, 31 at first grade. It's around that number as you go all the way up to third grade. So 
For example, at the beginning of the year, I have seen some of the inventories in which teachers are keeping their data and updating at least two of the domains of early learning each and every week. So they're constantly doing at least some updating on their inventory and all data is up to date within this space of at least a one month uh, period. I have seen some of these inventories in which by the end of October, I recognize that there are five or six kids in my kindergarten class, guess what, who already have practically, practically every one of the skills at a level of competency. Now, as a teacher, what do I do with those five or six kids who pretty much are solid end-of-year kindergarten students already? Mm -hmm. And I hope the answer is I do something for them at their level of readiness. In other words, I need to up the level of challenge or come up with projects or activities that extend information or extend application or knowledge in some important way for those kids. At the same time, I'm gonna recognize which three or four or five kids came into my kindergarten class and they don't even have some of the preschool level skills that I would like them to have. And now I need, I know, I need to work really hard on building some of those foundation skills, some of those oral language skills, or some of those sensory motor skills, or some of those behavior self-regulatory self skills, or some of the early phonologic skills. Whatever it is, I need to know what this kid needs so I can give it to him or her at a level of intensity that brings him back into the range where I can give him what I might consider normal kindergarten instruction. If I'm using a one-size-fits-all pacing guide and delivery of instruction in my kindergarten or first grade or second grade classroom, you can guarantee that you're not serving the needs of kids on either end of the spectrum. So earlier, you mentioned in terms of getting started to just start somewhere. Uh, schools that are starting uh, to implement competency-based learning, what are some of the challenges that they run into and how do they navigate those? What are some of the common challenges? Well, I have to say there are a lot of challenges. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one is that we have systematically trained teachers to be deliverers of lessons, deliverers of instruction. We have told them over the years, especially over the last 20, 25 years, that academic rigor has something to do with delivering more content. I don't look at academic rigor that way at all. I look at academic rigor as helping kids develop competency in all of the essential steps of learning so that they can be poised and ready to continue to be successful learners for life. So we have trained teachers to move from lesson to lesson to lesson to lesson and maybe have a little bit of a time for available for accommodations or extra support, but not so much. Instead, we created Title I systems and special ed systems, but those are for kids that have already been left behind to some significant degree, way more than I would like to see children left behind. There is a new set of teaching skills that teachers develop when they get involved in competency-based instruction. The research that we've done on this, and it's been reviewed and published, is really fascinating to me. Teachers who get good at competency-based learning, first of all, say they know their children better than they ever did before. And they were good teachers to start with. Now they know them better. They see the connections between different domains of learning. How does self-regulation, how does sensory motor, how does oral language, how does literacy, how does numeracy, how do all these things interact and affect one another? 
they differentiate instruction better and more intelligently, and they build better relationships with their students because they know them better and they're giving them what they need at their level. But there are new skills to be developed in becoming a competency-based teacher. To some degree, schools are built around comfortable routines and comfortable routines include getting through the material, giving tests, grading the way we do, changing those routines and changing adult behaviors is always challenging. Another thing I've seen, especially in the last five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, I've seen schools in which the level of stress and anxiety and the sense of overload, especially on administrators, is just incredible. Mm -hmm. I'm trying so hard. I'm working so hard. I'm covering so much. I'm giving so much time to testing and assessment. We're overwhelmed. Don't make me think about one more thing. And when you put people into a high anxiety state like that and then say, oh, by the way, we want you to learn a whole new system. <laughs> they may be a little bit slow to respond because people don't think at their best level when they are in those high states of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And then there's one more thing I could I could mention more, but this one is important. Money and power. There is a whole industry around coverage. There is a whole industry around curriculum and one-size-fits-all instructional programs. And so changing to a competency-based model has all of these things to deal with as we put together our plan. I always tell people like you that if you're going to do a competency-based learning approach, if you want to do that transition, take some time and don't hurry. Pick a place to begin, develop slowly a three to five year plan for implementation. This is not a one and done. This is not a quick and easy change. And study and develop your plan carefully and bring in the stakeholders, including teachers, including parents, including community leaders, so everybody knows what you're doing. And I think that's a that's a challenge for us in education, too, because our system is so rooted in, you know, top down, whatever comes from the state. We sort of a lot of districts and schools sort of jump uh, to whatever they're supposed to do for that, too. And too much of what we do is, is not really that thoughtful. And so, you know, your advice, I think, is well taken this idea of this is a major change. And so schools and organizations that want to, to um, switch so to speak, to competency-based learning, need to do this in a thoughtful way to so it, it's most successful. They really do, and I, I like that you mentioned that most of what we've done in education over the last few decades has been top-down. Um, part of that we have allowed to happen to us. In fact, nobody says you have to cover every one of the Common Core state standards or the Texas state standards or the whatever other set of standards. They are advisory and they're kind of forced on us by the nature of the tests that are likely to follow. Um, but all these top-down initiatives that we have seen really starting in the early 1980s, we started this whole school reform thing, hasn't led to one iota of improvement in national outcomes. Mm -hmm. If you look at 12th grade NAEP, NAEP scores, you'll see that there is not one lick of improvement since 1971 or 73 when we started measuring reading and then math. Not one lick of improvement from all the billions of dollars, all the school reform initiatives, all of the federal and state mandates, 
not one lick of improved outcomes. And have you seen the PIACC report that came out oh, almost a year ago? Mm -hmm. It's a, a fairly new study that was done by the Organization for Economic and Community Development, which is the group that puts out the PISA international tests. But they didn't look at just one grade cohort like they usually look at fourth grade or eighth grade or 12th grade. This one looked at this group of kids that we call millennials from age 16 to age 34. A large group of people, the ones who are in fact going to be in the work workforce for the next few decades. And they looked at three areas of investigation. One was literacy, numeracy, and the other was a new area of testing called problem solving. Maybe something that I would like for my kids. Literacy, numeracy, and problem solving. And 22 of the OECD nations uh, participated in this study. Where did the United States come out? In literacy, out of 22 nations, we were 16th. In math and in problem solving, we were dead last. Our millennials, compared to the other nations that were in this study, were dead last. We were tied with Spain and the Slovak Republic for dead last in problem solving and in math. Is that good enough to predict the kind of economic outcomes that we want for our nation? And that sounds like a beautiful question. <laughs> you know, thinking about all of those pieces that you just tied together for us and certainly gives us a lot to think about. So as we wrap up here, uh, Bob, what beautiful questions are you thinking about? Well, my mind goes to those kinds of questions all the time. And one that I, <laughs> one that has, as you can probably tell by now, and one that I wrestle with these days is, especially with my early learning work, I started this thing called the Early Learning Foundation. And we really want to look at the whole child, which means how do we make sure that this child is developing physically in terms of physical, gross motor, fine motor, and sensory motor skills, in addition to uh, the things that are related to oral language, which very often don't get very well included in a typical school program. Also, those things that are so important in relationship to social emotional skills and especially self-regulation, kids who can be calm, focused, persistent, delay gratification, adjust their emotional and physical states to their conditions, get excited at the right time, get calm and quiet at the right time, listen and focus at the right time. Those are really important things that have been, in fact, in many schools pushed to the sideline or marginalized because we're chasing after academic outcomes to get ready for these tests, we have marginalized the development of things like oral language and sensory motor skills and social skills and physical sensory and oral language skills. All those facets and domains of early childhood are in fact connected and integrated in a real human being. And so one of those big questions that I like to explore with people is how do we take care of the whole child especially during these crucial early learning years, to make sure that every facet of development is solid, competent, ready to go so this kid can be a learner for life. And that brings us back to what you're looking for for your own kids and certainly what we are hoping for our students in Salisbury Township. 
So, Bob, wrapping it up, we want to thank you for joining us. And in the show notes, we will give our viewers and listeners an opportunity to view some of the topics that you've talked about today. You can learn more about the Early Learning Foundation, which Bob mentioned. There's a great education news interview linked in the notes here. You can read some of Bob's ideas. Uh, you can connect with him on Twitter or LinkedIn. You can also find his email there, bob at earlylearningfoundation.com. Also referenced a couple of the documents that Bob mentioned, p21.org is a framework that we're using in our district and looking forward to taking some closer looks at the New Hampshire competency-based uh, framework that you mentioned. So lots of great resources there for our listeners. Each episode, we leave you with a couple questions to think about with the idea of provoking some conversation. This episode's questions include, what are you currently doing to break free from the cover test sort model of school and move towards competency-based learning? Second question, if you haven't yet implemented a plan of competency-based learning in your school or district, what will be your first step in taking action? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find out more about the resources and links we shared in today's episode, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for Season 2, Episode 15. We'd love for you to rate the show on iTunes, let us know your star rating, and consider leaving a one- or two-sentence review. If you have time to do that, you'll help new folks discover this content. That's it for now. We'll see you next episode for a conversation with another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Bob. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care, Lynn. Bye-bye.